Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Uh, that that intro is very fitting. By the way, I'm David. I'm Tyler. Because uh, we're not doing it weekly right now. Well, we will go back to, hopefully we'll do it again next week and the week That's after, the plan, and yeah. so on and so forth. But uh, it's been three weeks since we had done a movie journal. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, scheduling, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a busy uh, couple weeks. It really has. Um it's been a busy summer, actually, for me. This has been quite a summer for me. Uh, I have no concept of if my life is busy or not. <laughs> so, all right, um, but let's not waste too much time. Indeed. What we do want to mention real quick is our uh, our list, uh, voter voter uh, listener voted list of the top fifty film scores. Mm-hmm. You have until the end of August, so uh, midnight Pacific Standard Time. Uh, it's on 3 a.m. for you East Coast. Exactly. East so you've got a little bit more time. Good for you. Um, I know that's not <laughs> how it works. How works. <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't it like daylight savings, basically? <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you will email me, Tyler, at BattleshipPretension.com, and you will submit the 10 movie scores that you absolutely think belong on this list. We will be compiling them and then revealing the, the complete list uh, in September. And here's what I will say. Every vote counts. Like, there is one vote separating one from two, two from three, three from four, and four from five. Wow. Like, you could vote for one of those and change the, like, three movies, uh, three different scores have occupied the number one spot in the last week. This is like what the NHL Central Division was like last season. Absolutely. Look, David, you don't need to tell me about the NHL Central Division. Um it's hockey, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's actually been, you know by this time you know toward the end of the month with our previous list the number one is pretty set in stone. Um, you know, uh, The Shining for horror, uh, Doctor Strange Love for comedy. This year, I won't say what the what the top five are, but like any one of them could be the number one. And I myself, David, I'm excited. Although I will say this, um, I I certainly am rooting more for one or two of them than the other ones. All five of them are great. Okay. But, uh, but I know that, you know, I've got a dog in this, in this race and, uh, and I'm excited. So, uh, oh wait, hang on. I have a horse in this race and a dog in this fight is what I've got. I like horse in the race better. Okay. Dog in the fight makes me think of dog fighting, obviously, which is not a good thing. Hmm. I guess when you say I have a dog in this fight, yes, it's not, it's not a naturally occurring thing Yeah, and you happen to be walking by. It's like, you know what? I want that one to win. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So once again, Tyler battleship retention.com, uh, 10 movie scores that you think absolutely belong in the top 50, uh, rank them if you want. I'm not going to count it cause I don't have that kind of energy. Uh, but yeah, so please do that by, uh, midnight, August 31st, uh, very excited. Okay. Um, let's, uh, start. Um, yes. okay. I'll, I'll start. Uh, I saw a documentary. Okay. Um, this is a while ago. I've already written it up on the website. It was at the Sundance next fest. 
saw a documentary called Finders Keepers. Okay. That, uh, Oh, I can't yes, wait yes. for you to see. It's yes, a, I've heard good it's things. a blast yeah. because the story is that there's a guy who lost his leg below the knee in mm-hmm. a plane crash um, that also claimed the life of his father who okay. was flying the plane. Oh my! Um, and this guy asked to after he had it amputated, he asked the hospital if he could keep the leg, and he and he did. But also in the aftermath of this plane crash, he. Uh, relapsed into drug addiction. Okay. And so was evicted from his home. Okay. Put all his stuff, uh, in a storage unit, including his leg, which he had saw, he had embalmed himself because they just sent him, they didn't even embalm it. They literally sent him a leg that still had the skin on it. Are you sure this is an episode of Hannibal that you were watching? Uh, no, this is a, this is a documentary. Okay. Uh, he's, he stuck the leg, I guess for lack of a better place, he stuck it into like a backyard barbecue smoker type thing and stuck that into the storage unit. And, uh, more like Hannibal as you go, by the way. <laughs> and then again, being addicted to drugs at the time was not any more able to pay the rent on his storage unit than he was yeah. on his home and his stuff got sold at auction. So a guy bought this smoker and found a leg in it and a normal, I guess, decent human person would say, Oh, I should, you know, give this to the hospital or the more, find out why this is here. But this guy was like jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) And he decided that this was going to be his ticket to fame and wanted the leg so that he could turn it into like a tourist attraction. Like come see this embalmed leg that I found in a smoker. And so it turned into a years long legal battle between this guy once he had sobered up. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, how can he afford legal fees? Yeah. Uh, well, part of it gets like, it gets so, so like literally judge Joe Brown. Okay. The show. Yeah. That's, it's a part of the story and not just like, <laughs> Oh, they want to judge judge Brown. They did. But judge Joe Brown is more involved in this story than just them going on. Judge Joe it's Brown. His leg. Is that what you're saying? No, it's no, it's the, still the guy's leg. Okay. Um, the like the family resentments are very deep. Uh, the there's like there's issues of class, and it's like it, it's a very funny movie that occasionally I think maybe steps on that thing of like, are we laughing at these hicks? Uh, yeah, it, it, def- it, it's, it comes a little close to that at times, um, but I think it actually does have a lot of compassion for both people, really. Um, and is uh um <laughs> it's uh, again under 90 minutes which is always a a plus for me mm-hmm. i very highly recommend it but and even if you like just on the basis of it being funny alone uh i would recommend it but it's more than that it sounds pretty good but like you get <laughs> a line no I, I almost feel like no one could have written a line this perfect which is the guy who found the like mm-hmm. his wife says completely seriously and meaning it he likes the le- he likes the fame that comes with finding a leg in a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> what can it's, I say? Hey, yeah, it's full of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, oh, and also the guy who found the leg. And this is see, this is where I feel like maybe they're making fun of him. Okay. But he actually talks like this multiple times when he means to say what transpired he says what perspired like two or three times in the movie he says it and it got a laugh in the screening every time and i feel like uh that is funny (laughs) but it's tough when you're you know because that's what he said yeah you know it's it's 
to me, like, there was one that uh, back when we did a, an episode about um, uh, human interest documentaries, as we called them, there was one about, I think, pinball enthusiasts that I watched. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I, and I, I, that one, I genuinely feel like they were looking down on these nerds. Mm. Um, Cause there was one moment where a guy was like, he was just sitting and talking and he had a big, he had a bit of a belly and, his shirt was kind of pulled up a little bit, showing his belly. And it's like, you know, I recognize that's part of who he is. He's wearing a shirt that's maybe a bit too tight. But you can just be a decent human being and say, oh, hey, you should pull your shirt down. Right, like, yeah. that's, that's not interfering with who he is as a person. As opposed to, it's like, in that instance, you want to be like, uh, hey, chief, I think you mean transpired. Like, <laughs> you know, that that's interfering with who they are as a right, person. Right. And so... Yeah, it's it's tough to know, but I guess yeah. they didn't necessarily have to include it every time. But I mean, it's not like uh, the the things that he's saying are are germane to the okay <laughs> to the story. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, I I very I, I very much recommend this movie. It's okay. a, it's a good time. Okay, what's uh what's the what's up for you? So the last time we recorded uh, on a night with one of these, I believe. Um, immediately after, I went to see Fantastic Four because I was curious. Wow. It's something. It's so fascinating. It like my curiosity was founded. Uh, I, I discovered. Um, like it goes off the rails so much. I, I'm not saying anything. Nobody uh, that, that I'm not saying anything that other people have not said. Where the first hour is a I'd say a like a B grade, maybe B minus grade origin story it's taking things maybe a bit too seriously um it's making a couple leaps that i think aren't that great but but it's not terrible and especially when the fantastic four get their powers but they're not powers yet they're uh horrible deformities right it's like hey my arms are all stretched out this is really nightmare inducing and then hey i'm uh, always on fire that's not great and then i'm a big rock monster and then, uh, oh, I'm, uh, you know, going in and out of visibility. Like it's people have compared it to like Cronenbergian body horror. Mm-hmm. It's not that exactly, but it, it like it focuses on some of the tragedy of it, specifically with the thing. Um, and I think they're doing pretty well there. Um, the performances okay. aren't bad. And you can, and so then there comes a moment when it says one year later, from then on, it's like, oh, do you know what happened in that year? The studio got involved. <laughs> uh, and just, it's a, it's a tonally, it's a completely different movie. I know they did some reshoots. It, it is, and it goes so, like, because the first hour really takes its time, maybe a little too much. Then the last 40 minutes goes so fast that you're just like, what the, what the hell did I just watch? This is crazy. And it's, and the last 40 minutes are so awful i do a lot of people have said um it would be interesting someday to see and almost because it's fox again to see like a david fincher alien three like the assembly cut like in maybe 20 years they see josh tranks like original original vision yeah uh but frankly i don't think that's gonna happen um you never know but i don't think so it'd be nice it would be nice like did you read the i got really pissed off at entertainment weekly which i know that's you know Tilting at windmills. There. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a 15 year entertainment weekly subscriber. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I had to take some of it with a grain of salt, but I did get really pissed off on their story about it because their 
to use the word you've used before, the narrative that they were selling yeah. was essentially that Fantastic Four bombed because Josh Trank tweeted what he did a day or two before the opening. But what? he was responding to the word of mouth already being terrible. Yeah, even Miles he, Teller was saying something even before that. About, yeah, he wouldn't have yeah. tweeted that if the word wasn't always already, this movie's terrible. Yeah. You know, and the idea that, like, like mainstream movie-going audiences are going to not go because the director tweeted something, it's like, yeah. A, as much as people in our peer group love Twitter, not that many, like a lot of people aren't on Twitter and also and much, a lot of Americans don't give a fuck who the director of a ex- movie exactly, is. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. They I, know one name Spielberg, <laughs> right? They might be hard pressed to think of his first name and then that's it. They might, if pressed, they might say Hitchcock, but that's it. That right. is all they will know. And Xavier Dolan, those three. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> he's, he's catching on. Um, so he's, I, America, I, he's America's sweetheart, I, uh, but he's he's Canadian. Um, oh boy! I, uh, I I um I got really pissed off reading that. Yeah, that's a dumb narrative. But at the same time, and this but is but it's one of the read things. by people who are gonna oh absolutely. take that seriously now. Like it's it's not only that it's dumb. I feel like it's harmful to like uh, to Josh Trank's reputation. I feel like if you're going to as a major publication that writes about film. If you're going to do something that reflects poorly on a filmmaker or on a story, whoever, like you better mean it and like be able to back it up. Whereas this sort of well, conjecture, I'm about, I'm about to throw some shade on all uh, entertainment weekly here. Okay. Um, I feel like though they do occasionally have some interesting reviews and all that, like they are a very much a mainstream publication. And I honestly would not be surprised if they are much more interested in maintaining a good relationship with Fox uh, you know, they're not going to put any what? blame on. You're probably right. Like that's, that's very cynical of me to say, but I actually kind of believe it. Yeah. Even though they're owned by the same company that owns Warner brothers, right? Yeah. But still AOL like, time Warner. I mean, you and I like, is I it th- still AOL time Warner or do they split? I think I've only ever heard time Warner at this point. Whatever happened to AOL? I don't know. It okay. went, it, it went away. Goodbye. That's what it said. Um, but yeah. And so that, that's the thing that, um, that reminds, I heard a guy on the, on the bus the other day, he was a, uh, gentleman who was just talking to himself out loud the entire time on, on the bus. I don't know. Maybe he was mentally ill or something. I don't mean okay. to make fun. Sure. But he said something that was like, this is like, like the finders keepers thing. I'm not laughing at this guy for being mentally ill, mentally ill. He said something that was legitimately hilarious, Okay, which we passed a chase bank and he said, Chase Manhattan Bank. The Chase Manhattan ran out of that bank. Now it's just Chase. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's a fun oh, I thing. That was fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's I, it's something that I don't think I, I completely understood until we actually started having relationships with, with studios ourselves, which is now, of course, I don't think Fox is ever going to limit access to Entertainment Weekly, but, you know there's such a thing as being diplomatic and and if it's possible for a magazine to be a company man i think entertainment weekly would be it um but we can move on can i say i know we should move on can i say something sure that i i'm almost mad at myself for not tweeting something earlier but i'm gonna go ahead and do it here all right i got an email from uh afi i'm on their mailing list uh, as a member of the press i guess yeah i definitely remember press this is a press release and there was a note at the top of the email about this uh, upcoming this November's AFI Fest. And it said, 
Note, the full name of the festival is AFI Fest 2015 presented by Audi and should be referred to as such at least once in every article. Fuck that. <laughs> and I wanted to tweet, you know, I don't know, some version of LOL. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, no way am I ever going to call it, and except for in a tone that is dripping with as, as much yeah. mockery as you I either, can uh, here, here's the key. get out. You either don't mention it at all, or I'm going to say eight times. <laughs> That's oh, your option. That's what we should do. That's your option. That's what we should do. <laughs> Every review we post from this year's AFI Fest 2015 presented by Audi should the headline should start AFI Fest 2015 presented by Audi review by the sea by uh-huh. Scott and I or whatever. Oh boy, that's what we should. I'm do. sure our writers our writers will love that. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, yeah, just keep in mind the full name of the festival is AFI Fest 2015 presented by Audi. Um, and it should be referred to as such at least once in every article at least once uh, <laughs> but you know what oh I there's really a floor idea there's a floor but there's no ceiling i really love your idea of just constantly doing it um anyway and that way every article can be less about the movie you're discussing and more about this stupid horseshit that yeah. they're that they're uh, well, doing. that's audi <laughs> yeah not horse not, not horseshit all right uh sorry did you have more to say about fantastic four no we okay. can move on uh the next movie the last this is the last next fest movie i'll talk about uh a movie i was very excited for and it did not disappoint um it was rick alverson's entertainment Oh, okay, now, if yeah. you remember a couple of years ago, the comedy was on my top 10 movies of, was that 2013 or 2012? I think 2013. Two years oh gosh, ago. I don't remember. Um, and, uh, so I was very much looking forward to entertainment and, uh, as a fan of Rick Alverson, I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did not feel that way at the screening. A lot of people left. Even some of my friends that I went and got a drink with after the movie. Was it a critic like screening it. or it was... No, it was a festival screen. A the festival screen. Next That's fest. Right. I mean, right. it's next fest, which is. I guess I haven't really said what that is. We talked about Cop Car in the last time we did a movie journal. Mm-hmm. That was the first next fest thing I saw. So it's like it's not really a festival in the terms of like like LA Film Fest is. Mm-hmm. It's here's some of the popular stuff from the next series at this past year Sundance. We're going to show them over a weekend in Los Angeles, and they're going to be event screenings where there's like. Um, panels or for the evening ones excuse me musical performances afterwards so this was entertainment and then a performance by sharon van etten which mm-hmm. was fine um i like sharon van etten it was good um it was at the ace the the uh the theater at the ace hotel uh, which is a lovely venue um is a lovely place to be charged ten dollars for a beer mm-hmm. um <laughs> but uh anyway back to entertainment it's the story of a um comedian uh played by greg turkington who, who we comedy fans know as neil hamburger right. that's how that's who he performs as and that's who he's performing as he's only ever referred to whether he's in character or not as neil in the movie and okay. he's barely ever referred to by name at all but john c Riley is in the movie and plays his cousin okay. that he hasn't seen in a long time but he's touring kern county um, and uh, yeah. John C. Riley, and he, you know, spends some time at John C. Riley's ranch. John C. Riley is his wealthy uh, cousin. Yeah. Um, but it's mostly him and Ty Sheridan, who is a clown <laughs> slash mime. Um, and they just perform together, not at theaters, but at like prisons and dive bars and literally like a living room at one point. It's like it's, as it's, depressing. It's Kern County. It's the movie is as depressing 
depressing a look at the life of a comedian or a touring entertainer at all as you could possibly imagine. And it becomes, as it goes on, more outlandish, more outlandishly nightmarish. Um, And it is, I mean, not in a way that is like, I don't feel like there's like a sort of any sort of postmodern distancing where Mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, where, where like, you feel like the movie is almost sitting in the seat with you, watching it with you. You know what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? Like those kind of, it's not like that. Yeah. It's, um, it's a, it's a test this movie. And like I said, some people in my screening did not, uh, pass the test. I Indeed. guess, um, it is aggressively unpleasant at times and it has like there are, do you remember, did you, did you see the, the season of Kerber enthusiasm where they did the Seinfeld reunion? Yes. Do you remember Funkhauser? Right. Yeah. Super Dave yeah. tells Jerry a filthy joke. Yes. And the it's funny, not because the joke is funny, yeah. but just because it's, I can't believe he just told a joke that filthy in yeah. like in polite company. This is like a full movie version of just like, it's just like so uncomfortable and so unpleasant and so vulgar and just depressing. And I feel like I'm not selling it, but it's, it's enrapturing to me. I thought, I think it's incredibly powerful as a John Cassavetes fan who is from Kern County. I've got to see this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I won't go into too much more detail about it. There's a whole review on the website. Um, so go check that out. Okay. What's next for you? Next for me is Joel Edgerton's the gift. Oh, which we talked about on the last movie journal. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, we can move this along. Okay. What'd you think? Um, not bad. Jason Bateman's great. Like he's really, I think they're all three of them. Great. They they are, but I feel like Joel Edgerton, he is, there's no question. He is great. He needs to be a very specific kind of creepy, but it's the kind of creepy that eventually you realize like, Oh, there's like some really deep wounds there. And that's, and it's, and it's, you know, it talks about this idea that's like, you know, a broken person can often look a lot like a, a, a dangerous person, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe there's a connection between those two, but, um, but yeah, everyone is great, but I was, I was genuinely surprised by how, how committed Jason Bateman was to that role. Like, as you yourself said, like he is an asshole and mm-hmm. I mean, there are, and he is a bully. Um, and there are scenes when he needs to be that. And, those uh, an actor could have been very self-conscious and i don't consider i don't think of jason bateman as like a really great layered actor but after this i do um and he's a guy who still wants good things he wants what we all want but his willingness the uh, the lengths that he's willing to go to to get them is diff is what separates him and um which is the same with Joel Edgerton, you know? And so it reminded me in many ways of, so we're going to be for more than one lesson. We're actually going to be doing it, uh, for Halloween times, um, with the companion film. I think it was either going to be Scorsese's Cape fear. Okay. Or more likely joyride. Oh, um, and just, I like Joyride. Yeah, yeah, we both we both do. So, when, listeners, if you haven't seen Joyride, seek it out. I know you might think that it's not going to be good. You're incorrect. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the acting was great. I liked a lot of the uh, visual quality. As you know, I tend to be a little iffy about when actors direct. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there are just some really great motifs of um, glass. Mm-hmm. Specifically, it, and, and what that means, which is you're able to look in on other people, but there is a definite boundary keeping you from that. Mm-hmm. Whether it be a shower door, often a window. Within a hospital, there's you know uh, characters looking in on like babies in the in like the the baby room, whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, and so that winds up being a very interesting ba- baby theater. Ba- the, yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah. The curtain goes apart. Yeah. Um, but. Um, and just this idea of like characters feeling like they like longing to be a part of something that they can't be, you know? Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, it's pretty heavy handed in some instances, uh, like the use of, uh, monkey imagery. Yeah. yeah I bet you didn't think I was going to say that. Did you? Well, um, he doesn't like monkeys. He doesn't like monkeys. Hey, we've all got a thing, you know, mine is spiders. I don't care, care for monkeys either. I guess I don't either, but, uh, you know, certainly the, uh, the monkey mask. Yeah, I know listeners <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, it's creepy, you know, but it's also, see, this is my, like that part of the movie is so stupid to me that I wasn't creeped out about it. I was like, Oh, I thought we were watching something better than this. Yes, I mean, I didn't, it, it turns pretty pulpy, but here's the thing. Like I, I talked about, it. I feel like what's the, the movie's like, what it's like, it's like an hour and 50 minutes. It's, it's closer to close to two hours. It's pretty long. So I'm going to say it's about an hour that it's, uh, kind of that I thought it was kind of predictable and obvious. Mm-hmm. And then a half hour, which is the half hour. It's the half hour that Joel Edgerton is not in the movie, yeah. which is not, um, anything against him it's it's actually in praise of him like he knew both as an actor as an actor he his presence was powerful enough that he could be gone for half an hour yeah and as a director he knew to keep and a writer and director he knew to just focus on the fallout that this guy has had because it goes it goes against our expectations as an audience and if you're going against our expectations in a suspense film then that actually makes it more suspenseful and more like we will like there's a sense of inevitability of like, well, when is this guy going to show up? He's not, he hasn't been here for like a half hour, but also just by not even having done anything specifically villainous yet. Yeah. He has had such an effect on their marriage that you almost say like, maybe he doesn't need to come back. Maybe they're just going to tear themselves apart just because of what he's, what his presence has started. And so that half hour, I was like, okay, I'm really getting into this is doing something interesting. And then when he comes back, it's not only like disappointing, it's it changes what the movie is to me it changes what it's about yeah uh, it's and it also i mean um it also it changes i'm not the first person to point this out but um by the before joel edgerton comes back the movie has shifted to the point where it's essentially rebecca hall is essentially the protagonist yes at that point and With then two when, antagonists uh yeah and then when joel edgerton comes back it goes back very jarringly to me to being more about jason bateman i his character i felt and i and i, and I didn't like that um it, it felt like i'd invested in something and then that sort of petered out it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess it, it shifts to him as a protagonist, but it's a different type of protagonist now, you know, and we have different feelings about him. And But yes, uh, shifting to her as just like the horrified observer of, of all of this. And uh, it's not merely an observer, obviously, yeah. but like, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it it's it's pretty standard for the first hour. Then it be, Then there's a shift in perspective for the next half hour that's great. And then it turns into 
kind of predictable, kind of pulpy, and uh, but it's you know it's a very very worthy first effort as a director and as a writer. And I I don't know it's he's I think he has a, a pretty good future as a director ahead of him. I'll be, I'll be interested to see what he does next. Um, all right. I will talk very quickly about Straight Outta Compton because I okay. can't believe I didn't. Like, it seems like it was so long ago that I saw it yeah. that I can't believe I haven't talked about it. But we have talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked it. I thought it had a great energy. Um, it has it has such a great first half that the fact that it becomes kind of um, standard and dull in the second half, like it, the momentum is so good that I kind of didn't mind as much. Mm. Uh, and I like that the guy who plays Dre is just, he's fine, but the, uh, actors, O'Shea Jackson Jr. playing his dad, mm-hmm. Ice Cube and Jason Mitchell playing Easy E are both fantastic as is Paul Giamatti as, yeah. uh, Jerry Heller, their manager. Um, uh, that even when it is, um, kind of obvious, it's still, uh, interesting to watch. Um, but mostly to me, it's about, I, I I talked about this uh, with Paul Goble a little bit because he um, when he he felt that Paul says when he knows that uh, a movie is based on a true story, it almost like takes him out of the movie because he finds himself often questioning like, did that really happen that way? Mm. Um, I feel lucky that I don't have that. To me, I I can know the entire true story about a movie, but I just have a thing in my brain, I guess that when the logo comes up and the movie starts, I'm watching a movie and I kind of don't think about, I might revisit it after the fact, but uh, during the movie, I'm just watching the movie. I will be incredible. I will be as incredulous as if it, you know, it, like if it's, if something convenient happens or something a little too, right, right. uh, conventionally, uh, inspirational happens, I'll be like, Ugh, really? Yeah. But I'll be that with a, with a fiction film as well. Um, but mostly I think this is less of a biopic about these people, uh, although it becomes that in the second half and that's the weaker half and more just, uh, it's sort of a, um, uh, an examination of what the culture was that created gangster rap. Okay. And also why it, you know, where it came from and also why it found such popularity, both um, among the people that it, that these, you know, the, they, you know, we call it gangster rap is the term that took hold, mm-hmm. but they referred to it. The actual members of MWA referred to it as reality rap. That was what mm-hmm. they, that was what they called it at the time. And that's what the movie, the characters in the movie referred to their style as. And so it found an audience in the reality of those people, the same group of people, you know, the same, uh, region and social, you know, economic situation and, and, uh, racial background as the characters, mm-hmm. the, that audience found it, but it also became very popular among suburban white people. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it does a really good job of saying, this is, uh, this is why we as a nation or we as a culture gave birth to this at this time. Uh, and this is why it's, uh, important. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's given all the recent discussions in recent, uh, in, in recent, in recent, in recent years, recent year, the relationship between minority Americans and the police force, there's yeah. definitely some really, uh, relevant stuff, um, in terms of that, that, uh, that I think is quite, quite powerful. Uh, and, but it just mostly has, um, F. Gary Gray is a, 
uh, he's a competent, uh, more than competent journeyman director. Yeah. I know we have some trouble with that word, but uh, he establishes a sort of pace that is rollicking. I think it's a word that I try to avoid using too often because it's mm-hmm. like a movie reviewer's cliche. Yeah. But uh, Straight Outta Compton is a rollicking movie. Okay. And uh, more laughs than you would expect. Um, hmm. There's, I'll tell one part. Early when we, the, when we first meet Ice Cube, he's, uh, you know, his character lives in Compton, but it's bust to a. He's in high school and okay. being and uh, takes the bus to a uh, more, I guess, suburban white, uh, wealthier high school. And when we first meet him, he's on the bus home from high school. And some other kids on the bus that are getting back into Compton, some other kids on the bus, they think it's a fun idea to throw some gang signs up at some gangsters they actually pass. So the gangsters stop in front of the bus and get on the bus and threaten this kid who's sitting in front of Ice Cube, like literally pull out a gun and say like, stay in school and stick to what you know, or don't try to fuck with people like me, you know, just whatever it's like it's like a threat yeah but then when ice cube meets up with uh with, with dre um and dj yellow and whatever later he's like man you won't believe what happened <laughs> this gangster uh this crip or whatever got on the school bus gave a motivational speech and it bounced <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of the uh, biggest laughs of the movie but um yeah uh, it's a really fun movie uh we will bit of a spoiler I'll be mentioning it in the main episode. Oh, how week. exciting. All right. What's next for you? Uh, next for me is a documentary called doomed, um, which is about, um, the speaking of fantastic four. Um, it is about the 1994 Roger Corman. Okay. Fantastic four film that was never released. And it is, um, the content is interesting and, it's very it's fairly comprehensive uh they go into a lot of detail about how the film was was made and the actor's involvement and then what went wrong and that sort of thing um and it's interesting and it's a little tragic um often very funny as one would expect uh as they're talking about you know the budget limitations and um i think to me uh the most the film is at its most effective when it is talking about what it is to work for Roger Corman. Um, and just like, you know, they show a set from fantastic four and then they show a, a, a scene from uh Carnosaur, which was his film the year before. Uh-huh. And Hey, look, it's the same set, you know? Um, but, uh, it is in many ways, it's a standard talking head kind of film. In okay. fact, that's pr- almost ex- exclusively what it is like it doesn't show a lot of footage from the film and i feel like that's a mistake um it's just it's done very in a very straightforward way and again full of information and it's interesting but it's not remarkably compelling uh as a film is it funny oh yeah yeah okay yeah um it's it's engaging and you know um Mo- often when when the actors are uh on screen um but then there are a couple of crew members who uh have a very good perspective on what it was to work on this film and uh and 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 there again there is an inherent tragedy in it like the film uh the film t- one thing that i never knew is that the cast sort of when the film, I think it was the, 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 uh, the original, the 94 film, when it was 
sort of in limbo. The cast was going around to various uh, comic conventions and stuff, and they were signing autographs, not not to like you know emphasize their own fame, but to get word out about this movie mm-hmm. and like you know, hey, sort of start a grassroots movement. And they were paying for that themselves, the actors. Wow, and then various crew members spent like I think twelve grand of their own money to like like the makeup I think it was like the makeup budget wasn't very high and so these guys who were excited to be working on a superhero movie they spent 12 grand of their own money so that this this makeup could look as good as possible because this you know hey it's a superhero movie in the early 90s this is going to be a really great calling card and everyone was so excited because you know this is going to make our careers yeah that was kind of the attitude and then It'd be one thing if it was released and everyone was like, oh, this movie's not very good. But it was just never released. And by all accounts, by the way, and I've never seen the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. By all accounts, by from people that have seen it, it is quite charming. The script is very good. The acting is pretty solid. You know, you see the budget, but at the same time, you also see kind of the standard, well, our budget's not great, so let's creatively uh-huh. try to show this different thing. And so... Um, so it really, there is a tragic quality to it and, and a sad quality to it. And, uh, it, it definitely makes me want to watch that, that Roger Corman fantastic four. So, which I think is at the time was available online. Um, but even the person who posted said like, this might not be here very much longer, so it might be gone by now. But yeah, so, um, I, it was, it was interesting. Um, I feel like the director of the documentary, uh, settled, a little bit too much for like the obvious choice as far as how to make it. Okay. So anyway, moving on, uh, real briefly, cause we talked about this on the main episode last week, but I watched nine to five. I'd never seen mm-hmm. it before. Um, I thought it was very good. Uh, and it was, it was just speaking of like, uh, relevance with straight out of Compton. It's amazing mm-hmm. how much of the issues of, uh, sexism that are getting talked about a lot, uh, like today. chicks in the office, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you're talking about. Uh, Dames. Um, yeah, uh, it's amazing how much like, Oh, these are, yeah, these aren't new issues at all. I mean, nine to five is a movie that's older than I am and it's almost depressing. Is it really? It's from 1980. 1980. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, so it's depressing that so many of these issues, um, are still the same, uh, in terms of, um, you know, men getting paid more than women or promoted over women, you know, um, (laughs) I, uh, yeah, we can't get into that. Well, men do get paid more on average than about women. 7% more. Yes. Um, I don't know. Uh, isn't it uh, 73 cents on the dollar that women make? That is if you take out factors like education, number of hours worked, uh, number of years worked. If you take out every qualifying thing, if it's about equal pay for equal work, but that it's that word equal, okay. Of like, what does that mean? If you and I, like you and I went to the same college. Okay. If we, if, well, okay, let's say I'm a woman. Um, you and, and But you and I are still basically the same. We have the same amount of college. We've worked the same number of years, and it's the, and we basically have the same position. The difference drops to about 7%, not 23%. Okay. Um, I, I, to the point that even, even um, President Obama's own, I think it was the Department of Labor, I don't 100%, like, it is often quoted... Uh, by the president himself as saying, as saying like, Oh, look at this income inequality. And they're like, yes, we did say that when you look at 
all men and all women, but if you look at the specifics okay. of like a specific job and 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 people applying for that job, it drops from twenty three percent down to about seven. But wouldn't that those differences in the equal work par- portion mm-hmm. wouldn't those have some? Uh, cultural roots in terms of what we expect of women in terms of staying home when they have kids or missing work or they could, but it's not impossible. And especially in the days of nine to five, no question about it. Um, but these days there is, um, and you know what, there's also an interesting thing. And this is to me, to me, the conversation is different. It's not merely pay. It needs to be, you know, the, the culture that both, uh, genders, uh, operate in. Like, for example, I was watching, I was, reading this article and it was fascinating and it talked about um uh one of the reasons and i guess someone could look at this negatively but i think it's fascinating one of the reasons that like uh men get paid more is they're more likely to to simply negotiate pay and women often aren't. And I feel like that it denotes a cultural thing as well, which yeah, is I like, don't hey, think it's because, just be happy to get what you get. Right. You I know? don't think it's women like being naturally less no, ambitious no, it, or demure. Yeah. It's the culture, yeah. you know, uh, insisting me, on certain norms of femininity. Yeah. But to me, that I think is the conversation to be had more so than. And so, so like so stuff like Mad Men and Nine to Five and Working Girl. Um, have you ever seen working, I've never girl? seen working girl? I think you'd love it. It's okay. it's a lot of fun. But anyway, I feel like that's the conversation to be had more than like pay is merely the, the pay issue is merely a symptom. But when you look at the idea of actual what they talk about, okay. equal pay for equal work. But I feel like we're still having the same argument here, I guess, ultimately. In a different in a different Because I don't thing. think we're like, saying that there's like a snap of the finger solution to to men and women being paid equally i don't i like i think there's the the equal pay act like there's a lot of people who want to snap their fingers and say this is how we solve it but uh, i think we both recognize that it's a a symptom oh sure absolutely yeah i think we're both saying the same thing here um anyway i'm sorry we'll get political when we when i bring up best of enemies All right. Actually, we won't. I'm, I had a rough day at work, so I, I got to brace myself for that. Um, I'm planning on talking mostly about. Uh, it's fine. We'll go. Okay. We'll go. Uh, but yeah, no, I forgot what I was going to say about nine to five. I'm terribly oh, sorry. What I was going to say is, addition, it, like uh, apart from uh, the gender issues, as a guy who works in an office and a mm-hmm. sort of corporate like office, just the issues of like office work that haven't changed that are yeah. like we were. Uh, you know, they, uh, I don't know if you've even seen nine to five. I've like, not. So at one point they kidnap their boss, Dabney Coleman, mm-hmm. keep him home. And so part of the joke is that they can run the office so well that no one else for like six weeks notices that Dabney Coleman isn't showing up to work. Cause like Dolly Parton is just his secretary and is just running things. That's fine. And so Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda are essentially they're running the office and they make changes uh, in terms of um, that are very worker friendly in terms of pay, in terms of flexibility of hours, in terms mm-hmm. of paying for daycare and these sort of things that are still issues today. Mm. And that was also depressing to me that it's like, yeah, I don't have like, there's no good reason that I shouldn't have more flex hours at my job. In fact, there's no good, like I shouldn't, in the 21st century, in the year 2015, okay. I shouldn't have to actually go to my job more than once a week. Like, I can do so much of my job from home. Oh, sure. 
that like once a week to do like certain things that for security reasons can't be accessed remotely. Right. I could do some stuff. And there's some files from, you know, I can't say what I do, but from the company's past, sometimes I'll have to access physical like reports and stuff that are filed away. But I could do my job pretty much as well as I do it now, including going to meetings and stuff yeah. with Skype or, or what have you. I could do my job working from home four days a week. And, I and yet like- I can't because there's just an old an entrenched old-fashioned office culture it isn't yeah and i think it speaks to this idea of yes a court like a corporation or even just a job it might be theoretically like an objective thing that requires things from people but it's still run by people and people have certain ideas like i i was um years ago i was hired on as a runner at a post-production house and you know, so I would be driving from Glendale to Santa Monica or Venice or something like that, you know, just making deliveries and picking things up and, and all that, going to various studios. Um, and that was fine. That was the job I signed on for. Um, but then there were some days when I'd only be making one or two runs uh, a day. And my boss, she just had this attitude where she, and she specifically said, she's like, I feel like I'm paying you for nothing. Like on those days when I'm just sitting around for like maybe three hours, uh-huh. she's like, I feel like I'm not paying you for anything. And I said, well, you're paying me to be available yeah. so that I can hop in my car at any moment and go and do something. And so, but she didn't like the idea of that. And so she turned my runner gig into a runner PA gig, thus ruining my job because <laughs> had it been a PA thing, if it had been advertised that way, I would not have applied because I'm not a good PA. I'm a good runner. Um, and that's, that's completely based on her perception of things and feeling like, oh, I feel like I'm not doing this. It's like, well, you know, it's the position that you put out there, right? you know, and paying for somebody's availability, that is, that is also invaluable, you know, and it's, well, it's not invaluable. You can put a price on it, but like that is, that is a legitimate thing. But in her eyes, in her just completely flawed human perception, it's, I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth. And th- this is what you're talking about. Like, I don't, f- it's like, unless the people are in the office, I feel yeah. like they're not doing work. Right. Unless I can see them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Keep an eye on them. But yeah, people like I would, there's still performance based stuff. Like if I, whether I'm at, whether I were at my desk all day or at home on the computer all day, if I don't get my job done, I'm going to get in trouble. And if I keep not getting my job done, I'm going to get fired. Right. It doesn't matter where I am. You don't have to see me working. Yeah. Like it's not, there's not, you know, there's still plenty to hold me accountable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I, I feel, I get very frustrated sometimes when traffic is bad or, uh, when I feel like people are looking over my shoulder, uh, for no good reason. It is why, like, um, I I do not function well with a boss. I do have a boss, right? But I see her and speak to her maybe every two or three months. <laughs> you know, the rest of the time it's just I get a I get a photo set sent to me. I do it. I send it back, and hey, I get paid in, in every two weeks. You know, and it's marvelous. Yeah, it's marvelous. Anyway, so that's nine to five. What's next for you? Next for me is, let's see what it is. Oh, how fun. Oh, it is best of enemies. Um, and we already talked yeah, I saw a one. lot about that. Yeah. Um, I loved it. 
Yeah, I thought it was so great. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It it strives to be objective, not merely for political purposes. It strives to be objective because I think the filmmakers understand, and this is certainly the narrative they're putting out there, that these men are so similar in their Uh own eyes. They couldn't be more different. But when we look at them, we look at the way they talk, their backgrounds, even the fact that they both ran for office at some point, yeah. like it's so close. Like it, it was almost like, it was like serendipitous that these were the two guys that would be picked because they're just, it's like looking in a mirror. Um, it, it, fa- that fascinated me more than anything. And also the tragic nature of both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went in expecting like, okay, there's going to be like a tragic element to like Bill Buckley who said this thing that he regretted for the rest of his life. But there's a lot, you know, Gore Vidal and the idea of him wanting to like striving for relevance and being like, you know, the voice of like a certain type of liberalism in the country that, to the point that he was the representation of that mm-hmm. to then not really being much of anything. And that's the yeah. tragedy for him, you know, and that I don't know, it's I re- way more than I thought I would. I got a really strong sense of who these two guys were as people. And I thought it was that to me more so than anything political, the political stuff was interesting and the debates were interesting. And both of them had like, to me, I forgot how much I enjoy hearing them talk. Yeah. Both of them. And when, and when Buckley breaks down a thing that Gore Vidal says about Reagan saying like, he's an aging oh, Hollywood yeah. actor and he's like, well, <laughs> we're all aging. And then, and he just, He's launches into this thing yeah. and he goes point by point and completely destroy. Like just, I don't like to use the word destroy cause that's what they say on the internet and stuff. Yeah, but it's like, like Gawker talk. He like, no, I shouldn't, shouldn't say Gawker talk. It's Buzzfeed talk. There you go. What's there's but, other ones, right? Probably. Yeah. There's, there's one that's like up something. Up rocks. Is up rocks. Uh, I don't know. Upworthy. Maybe is upworthy is the one yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, but the way he like just picks that apart, it's like, wow, that's really yeah. expertly done. And just, and the way they just dig at each other. Cause like he says, he's like, you know, and his working in Hollywood, uh, it's like, it seems to me that it's like, it's like, and him aspiring to be in politics. And now here's Gore Vidal, who's written a number of movies <laughs> and has worked very much in Hollywood. And now he is being, and now he is here commenting on politics. And it seems to me that the only crime that Ronald Reagan committed was not acting in a Gore Vidal movie. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> fuck man. Like that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, that you know, good. and both of them just go at each other and it's so much, it's, it's sad. It's funny. It's engaging. It's so much of what like a documentary can be. I mean, think about it. Like, and there's talking heads and stuff, you know, it's so much like, a retrospective documentary it's you could just have modern day people talking about it and then show footage from it the end but they they really delve into it even having you know kelsey Grammer and john lithgow like you know uh verbalized writings of these guys like it's it's a really well it's one of my 10 favorite movies of the year okay uh all right next up for me again this should be quick well i said 95 is gonna be quick and we gotta do a whole thing yeah sorry but this is also something we talked about last week because i watched flirting with disaster mm-hmm. yes uh it's really good yeah it's great all right moving on <laughs> uh so i did a rewatch uh the texas chainsaw massacre a film that loses none of its potency i've seen it probably four or five times now and every time 
just my heart is you know especially for that last like 20 yeah. 25 minutes like yeah. my heart is racing and i just can't help but just be like oh just get out of there and you can't get out of like the odds are so stacked against these people and yeah. um and i think this time what what um really struck me was two things number one the style of filmmaking now i had only ever thought of it as like just gritty and you know just kind of in its own way um uh, almost um like neorealistic you know right. um where yes they might dress up the house but there's not like like a lot of like high contrast or anything like that. So that's how I thought of it for a long time. But when you look at the, the opening, Mm -hmm. which is like the flash bulbs going off and just seeing like skulls and and just, and then starting with that weird bone sculpture in, in what, and they have to, they must have some kind of red filter on that thing. I know Texas is hot, but like, (laughs) you know, and then just slowly zooming out and just little things like that. It's like, those are stylistic choices that go beyond merely, Hey, let's show a gritty, uh, gross yeah. horror movie. So that's something that I think I, I had a deeper appreciation for this time. And the other one is, um, the, it's weird to classify Leatherface as sympathetic, but he's a little sympathetic. Yeah. You know, when you realize like there's undoubtedly something mentally wrong with right. him yeah. and the rest of his family is just completely exploiting him. Although they, they tend not to be super cruel to him, but they do no. use him. Yeah. Um, they're not exactly they're models not incur- of sanity yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I liked that. And there's, there's a scene in there that I think is, it just shows the sensitivity of uh, Toby Hooper and Gunnar Hansen, um, where it is after, it is after Leatherface has killed the third person to come into the uh-huh. house. And he, so he kills them. They're dead. It's a horrible thing. But then you see him running all over the house panicked mm-hmm. and scared. And it's this idea of like, and I watched uh, the making of, and, and, and I think either, I think Gunnar Hansen, uh, who played Leatherface, I think he said this, that like, there's an element to him of like, where are all these people coming from? They're coming into my home. Right. And if you have the mind of a child, which he does, um, that's, that's a scary thing. And he's yeah. just sort of protecting himself and he'd rather not be doing this the way he's doing it. And, uh, it's a really sensitive moment and a really effective moment. Yeah. Um, certainly you still, you don't want him to get, you know, you don't want him or his family to win. But, uh, but I thought, I don't know. It's, uh, every time I watch that movie, I see something else and something that I just love. And, and I think this is the first time I've seen it since the, the, the passing of, uh, Marilyn Burns, whose performance is so, uh, it's like one of the best horror performances ever, just because yeah. like that amount of panic, like how, like she might, I feel like it's almost that thing. It's like, Oh, she'll sleep tonight. It's <laughs> right. like, that's to be able to tap into that level of terror is insane. But anyway, yeah. okay. So we can move on. Okay. I saw a movie, Tyler. I saw a movie that I loved, loved. Okay. I knew very little about it. I'd heard of it. Okay. I had heard of it somewhat recently because there was a, there was recently a Keanu Reeves movie called 47 Ronin. Okay. Yeah. But I saw the 1941 Kenji Mizoguchi film, the 47 Ronin. Oh, okay. Which is, and I say four hours long. That's how I've been describing it. It's only three hours and 43 minutes. Oh, okay. It's All not right. four hours. Yeah. Long. Let's not be crazy. 
Um, and it is so fantastic because it is, I mean, it's when you hear that a movie is about Ronin, mm-hmm. uh, plural Ronin, you think, Oh, must be a lot of sword fights in that, right? Yeah. Nope. These are, yeah, these are, there's 47 samurai and plus some other samurai in the movie. This is almost entirely a movie about people sitting in rooms talking for four hours. <laughs> it is so fantastic. It's essentially, I, you don't watch Game of Thrones, but for people who do watch Game of Thrones, imagine that Game of Thrones was just the scenes in King's Landing where you see people plotting stuff and you only find out about the, you don't never see the result you find out after. Like, it's like Survivor. There is, yeah, there is a huge, like, the whole thing is that these, uh, this uh, aristocrat uh, attacked another aristocrat mm-hmm. in the castle of the shogun shogunate or whatever um and so his house has been dismantled and the 47 ronin who were under his who you know a part of his household uh vow revenge mm-hmm. but they do it uh in a way that takes over a year to do um it's a very slowly plotted mm-hmm. that ends with a raid on the house of the guy that their master or whatever was trying to kill in the mm-hmm. first place so you're building towards this raid. The 47 Ronin are going to raid this castle. It should be cool, yeah. right? We find out about the raid after it's happened when another character gets a letter describing what happened in the raid and reads it out loud. <laughs> That's as close as we get to an action scene. It's just like they stormed the gates. They found the guy in his bedroom. They killed him. <laughs> it's Was this film just, well received at the time? I don't know, but it's like... I mean, I know I'm, I'm like la- laughing and making it sound boring, but it's not boring at all because yeah. so much of it is about planning and about like, it's almost because the world, I mean, there's the remove of I'm an American watching a movie that takes place in Japan, but there's also the time remove. Like mm-hmm. I'm in 2015, the movie was made in 1941 and takes place. I don't know, hundred, a hundred years yeah, before yeah. that or whatever. Um, and so, a part of it is figuring out how, cause their plotting isn't just like, it's not like we see a heist movie where they're laying out the blueprints of the castle and saying, here's how we're going to go in. Right. Like their plotting takes into account protocol and mm. like how, you know, what it means, what, what proper action should be taken and how, like, can we seen, how can we be seen to be following protocol and not dishonor ourselves by breaking the rules of decorum, but still be plotting this attack and revenge. Like, how do we balance that? Like we, like, it's not just that we need, um, uh, revenge. It's that we need to carry out revenge without ever dishonoring ourselves or more importantly, the household of our late master. Yeah. It's so it's just four hours of people sitting in a room talking and plotting. And it's wow. so awesome with, with, with no, uh, certainly with a payoff, but not the the payoff one would think. It sounds like uh, one would think. No, yeah. like all right, forty minute action scene. Here we go. No, yeah, it's not like yeah, it's not like it's, it's not like just, thirteen. Did you ever see Thirteen Assassins? I did not. Awesome movie because that's also a movie that like gives you hints of violence. It's like that's like a two hour and twenty minute movie. Yeah, it gives you hints of violence, but it's not an action movie until the last forty five minutes when it is a nonstop, completely insane action movie. That's I love Thirteen Assassins so so much. Did you ever see? Um, I do own it. Do you have you ever seen um, Three Outlaw Samurai? I never have. No, I think you would like it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so that's so. the forty seven Ronin. I definitely recommend seeing it. It's in. It's on um, Hulu Plus, or I guess it's just Hulu now. I don't know. I still go to Hulu Plus. I guess it still says Hulu Plus 
on my Blu-ray player thing. But like apparently they dropped the plus or are dropping the oh, plus. All right. Anyway, uh, it's on there in two parts. It's like a yeah, it was split into two parts. I don't know okay. if that's how it was released theatrically or is there or like what? a natural end point for the first part? Uh, yeah, there's a natural sort of almost like a cliffhanger. Okay, all right. Um, that sounds very that sounds very interesting. I I feel like I'd have to kind of rev myself up for it just <laughs> because the thing the thing that gets me about like a, a foreign language film for me is that I'm a very slow reader. Uh, it it frustrates me a lot. Um, of course, eventually I I get into the rhythm of it and it's right. fine. Um, but when it's something where there's a lot of talking, yeah, it's just like oh boy, here we go. Um, but at the same time, like you know, some of my favorite films are foreign language films with a lot of talking. Um, and so it's just a thing that I need to <laughs> mentally prepare myself for. It's like, all right, get your eyes ready. Cause you're going to be doing a lot of reading and it's hard to, it's hard for me to not just lock my eyes into that lower third. Like that, that's tough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should say this real quick uh, about okay. it being on Hulu. This is the, one of the biggest pluses of, I didn't even mean to, what? of having a Hulu plus account is that, Criterion has a huge has a channel on yeah. like and all their stuff, including stuff that Criterion has the rights to that has never been released by Criterion, right. which is what the Forty Seven Ronin is. I don't think they've ever put out a DVD or Blu-ray of the Forty Seven Ronin, but it is under the Criterion channel on Hulu. Yeah, they have uh, like I believe on disc they've only released two Harold Lloyd films, but they have a lot more hmm. on uh, on Hulu. Um, okay, so next for me, I saw Guy Ritchie's The Man from Uncle. Oh, I really want to see this. It's I like who Guy Ritchie has become. No, I haven't as... seen any of his films since Snatch. I've seen exactly two two Guy Ritchie films. Okay, the two that made his name. Okay, Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. Right. Uh, I did. That not sounds see... like three films, but the first one's called Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh yes, our listeners know that. They get it. Um, they're savvy. Uh, I saw both Sherlock Holmes films, uh-huh. and I saw this i feel like there's probably another one that i'm not thinking of there's swept away i didn't see that one and then did he do i, I think he did rock and roller in fact i think someone did he direct that me. someone emailed me okay um because we talked to paul and i talked about man from uncle okay um because he liked it too and i someone emailed me anyway yeah. what did you think of it i really enjoyed it it's it it had a it was it was a really nice sense of fun like when i you know it's it's frustrating watching trailers is frustrating because um yeah it's him because you know you can't help but approach the movie the way the trailer has informed you to do so like you know when i saw the trailer for paddington i thought this looks like a piece of shit and then i saw it and it's my favorite movie of the year you see the trailer for man from uncle and it looks like just the most conventional, like with the most obvious jokes, um, and just completely forgettable. Uh, but when you watch it, it's very clever, very classy, very polished as it should be given the, the nature of the characters. Um, really fun acting. Henry Cavill is, is doing really good work. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, really, just some really exciting action sequences. Um, and, and it did inspire me to, uh, to suggest a topic for to you for some time in the future. Okay. Um, in which we would talk about movie, like cold war movies, um, right. because they come in all shapes and sizes. Like 
this is a Cold War spy movie that's as fun as it can get, but then you also get The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is the 47 Ronin of spy movies. <laughs> um, and it's... Uh, but yeah, it's... And they, they leave it open for, for a sequel. My guess is it won't happen because it didn't do very well. But uh, Is that true? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, well, maybe it'll do well overseas. May, you know what? Maybe. You never know. Um, I do... If they make another one, I, I I'll see it. Like it's this one was just a very a thoroughly enjoyable time at the at, at the movies. Um, have you watched any of the series? I have not. We Paul and I, I keep mentioning Paul in my other show, which is called Hey Watch This. We talk about uh, TV. Uh, Paul's idea was instead of watching shows that aired this past week, we mm-hmm. watched and talked about two episodes of The Man from Uncle and uh, the. The first episode ever of The Man from Uncle, and I, I want to watch more, but the first episode, The Vulcan Affair, is so great. It's like, when it's become, it's already become like, when I think of like great pilot episodes or great like first mm. episodes of a show, I will consider Man from Uncle on that list because it's, it has no setting up here's who Napoleon Solo is or here's who Uncle is. Like, yeah. it, you could watch it and not know it's the first episode and never realize that it's the first episode or just, Here's a story, of, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's really really good stuff. Yeah, it's um, how did you how did you watch it? Uh, it's uh, all the episodes are available on Amazon. Okay. They're not free. They're like two dollars an episode or thirty five dollars a season. Which you think, wow, thirty five dollars that's a lot. Remember, this is a time when seasons were thirty episodes long. Ugh. So there's four seasons of of the Man from Uncle, but a hundred and twenty episodes. Yeah, hour long drama, and then this is at a time when an hour long TV show was fifty fifty one minutes, not forty two minutes, whatever they are now. There's, uh, yeah. When I saw the film, I wanted to. I, I looked up stuff about the the show, and it made me want to watch it. Honestly, okay. Now, um, next we're going to talk. I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'll, I think I'll talk about it more here, and then skim over it in the main episode. But I was at an event uh, this past weekend called the real thing R E E L, which is a yearly sort of mini conference put on by the association of moving image archivists of which I am a member. Um, and I went with my coworkers again. I feel like I'm dropping hints. I know I don't say what I do for work or where I work, but I went with my coworkers. Fun game. Yeah. I went with my coworkers to uh, some of my coworkers to, uh, the real thing. And it's, um, it's, there's an opening night, like, uh, reception and then a film and it's and then there's two days of panels and presentations which we'll talk about more in the episode Mm -hmm. and then each of those two days also ends with a film so there's three three features one at the end of each day and they're all things that were recently restored you Mm -hmm. know this is these are archivists this is what they're interested in right so the opening night film was a new 4k restoration of john houston's 1972 film fat city Okay. Um, have you seen it? I have not. You would love it. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of John Huston stuff that I actually haven't seen, like a lot of uh, later stuff that he did. Um, yeah, and, you know, my my boss was talking about, like, John Huston is like a guy who made, you know, classic, like, studio films in, like, the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Fat City feels like it's such a part of the new, young 1970s Hollywood. Like, it feels like... 
my boss's point was that if like if he'd been told this was the first or second feature of like a yeah. a 20 something you know uh young turk you know coming up in the in in the 1970s you'd totally believe it, it yeah, his ability to adapt, like when I saw Pritzi's Honor, which was one of his last films, mm-hmm. um, it was, I think, 1985, you know, that's 44 years right. after the Maltese Falcon. A lot had changed in film between those. Yeah. And Pritzi's Honor, if you, if, if, if you had said, like, just, I'm trying to think of, like, a, a, speci- a specifically, like, 80s director, and I can't think of one right now, but, like... Um, if you had said again, like, Oh, is this young director who's making this little mob comedy? It's like, Oh, all right. Yeah, no, it's this 80 something guy who, who not only was raised up in classic Hollywood, but like made staples of classic Hollywood. And he was able to adapt to uh, a modern audience. And it was just, and that always fascinated me that he was, cause you wouldn't, you know, when you look at him, like he looks like he's as old as death itself. Um, you wouldn't think that he's a guy who could adapt so readily, but he can't yeah. always. Well, didn't we kind of have that uh, a few years ago? I guess now it's like seven years ago, but uh, before the devil knows you're dead. Sure. Is a Sidney Lumet film. Yeah. That yeah. is like almost exhaustingly cynical in the way that like, I feel like a, a young filmmaker is. Um, and I really, I really like the movie. That's not, that's not a dig against the movie. I think it's a really good movie, yeah. but, uh, anyway, back to fat city. Um, Stacey Keach is the star. Okay. Um, Jeff Bridges, a very young Jeff Bridges at this point, uh, still is the, I guess, second build. And they both play boxers. Stacey Keach, a boxer who, um, I guess comes and goes from boxing because he tends to fall back into habits of, um, uh, being a drunk. Um, and Jeff Bridges is an up and coming boxer. And then Nicholas Colasanto, AKA coach from cheers oh, yes, yes. is their, uh, they're Meredith Burgess, whatever you call Burgess Meredith. Uh, Burgess Meredith is what I'm to say. Um, uh, you could also just call him the Penguin. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, no, I think of him as Mickey before I think of him as the Penguin. Fair enough. Um, and then Susan Tyrell, uh, whom I know knew mostly from Crybaby, uh, who was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, actually. Hmm. Um, uh, and she's the woman that Stacey Keach shacks up with for a while and there's not much in way in the in way of story it takes place over you know there's long gaps in the narrative like it jumps so it takes place over probably a couple of years uh and it's a if you choose to look at it this way it's a very depressing movie okay but it also finds a lot of um you know very uh humanistic slice of life sort of comedy in uh in in these people in the sort of that are scraping by in the lowest rungs of, uh, 1972 Stockton, California life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I feel like between entertainment and this, like that part of central California, that it's not a great place to be. Like it's, yeah, it's getting a lot of, uh, well, it's, it, it's very much a place that like the whole reason it exists is because there was oil there. Right. And so I feel like you just got, like nobody went there because it was a nice place to be. <laughs> right. It was merely where they could make some money and, and, you know, yeah. set up shop. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I don't want to say too much about it. Hopefully, I, I think it is actually getting a, um, they, the, they said at the, at the conference that it's getting a release, uh, a Blu-ray release from twilight time okay. soon. Oh, uh, twi- okay. 
So yeah, I really like what they what they do. Yeah, me too. Um, All right. So uh, what's next for you? Next for me is Michael Camino's The Deer Hunter, which um, was that a first time or a all right rewatch? I it turns out it was a rewatch. Okay, (laughs) Um, I uh, I remember that I had seen the first because it very much can be split up into thirds. I remember seeing the first third and I having a specific memory of that. And then, you know, some of the, the, uh, Russian roulette scenes. And I thought like, yeah, but those Russian roulette scenes, like those pop up in pop culture. And so mm-hmm. I thought like, and I didn't really have much memory beyond that. And so I thought, okay, did I actually finish this film? Cause, cause I had a firm memory of like the wedding scenes. Yeah. Um, and then a hazy memory of everything after that. So I thought like in high school, when I watched this movie, did I only watch the first part of it, stop watching. And then just, just through cultural osmosis, just absorbed those Russian roulette scenes. Uh, not the case as it turns out, as I was watching the movie, so much stuff came rushing huh. back to me. Um, and so it is a thing. It was, it turns out it was a rewatch, uh, that I did not know about. Um, so, cause I knew that I had sat down to watch it. I just don't remember. I didn't remember finishing, but, um, so, and I certainly have, uh, changed as a film goer since then. That's something I'm, cause I've seen it before and I th- didn't think it was all that great. And I wonder if I have changed enough to be, that's where I am. Cause when I think about it, I think oh, that does sound really good. Like that. It's this I mean, it's essentially, uh, I guess, an epic. Would you say it's an epic? Because sort of, it sure is on a. It's on a very small level. It's on very a very human level. Human level, but it. I mean, it treats. Uh, I mean, I kind of love that it has that it gives as much time to the wedding at the beginning as it does to their the Vietnam sequence in the center of it. I would like it. I would like. I like that in theory. But I don't. Yeah, I, I don't enjoy spending time with any of these characters. Okay, so maybe maybe I was right uh, when I was nineteen or twenty, whatever, and I watched it. Yeah, there's a lot of good in there. The, the performances are amazing, as one would imagine. You've got like you know Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken, but um, John Cazale and John. Oh yes, John. His last film. They had to shoot all of his stuff first because hmm. he was sick, and I believe the studio would not insure him, and so I think Robert De Niro paid for the insurance himself. Um, cause he wanted him to be a part of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, an effective little film. Again, I, we talked about it on more than one lesson. So if you want a more in depth, I, uh, discussion of it, you can go over there, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's, it's pretty early in, as far, as far as Vietnam war movies, you know, and it wasn't necessarily trying to be a pro-war movie or an anti-war movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more just kind of talking about the fact of war. I mean, it, you, one can make the argument that it was about, it could be about World War II and kind of have similar ideas. Right. But um, but yeah, that said, it is a little bit heavy-handed. It reminded me emotionally uh, of Crash, another Best Picture winner, which you know tackles a, a thing that is very relevant to our society, but does so in a way that is very heavy-handed. But... Uh, there's still a lot of good in it. Um, specifically the performances and, uh, some of the photography. Um, but yeah, it was a movie that I thought was merely fine. Okay. Um, don't get too comfortable cause this one's only going to take me a second. Okay. Uh, saw a restored short film. Uh, again, we'll talk more about this in the main episode, but a lot of the focus of the first day of the real thing festival was on early technicolor pre three strip. Okay. Technicolor two color technicolor, roughly 1915 to 1935. 
um, and they showed a lot of clips, but they showed one short that had been restored, a musical short called The Sultan's Jester, which is just a sultan is sitting with his harem and his jester, and he decides, if I don't laugh in the next however long, everyone's getting their head chopped off. So it's the oh, jester. Good. It's a funny thing, but it's the jester bringing out, it's just a, an excuse to have a bunch of acts come out and like perform. So it's yeah. the jester like making dumb jokes and um, bringing out act after act so you can see people dance or like belly dances and stuff like that. It's a weird little short that I uh, uh, enjoyed because some of the, this one, it was like two men and a woman. They were just like tossing each other around. It was like a gymnastic type of thing. It was really, really fascinating, but sounds, it was mostly sounds pretty hot. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, it was the, and the Sultan made a lot of, uh, very, very corny jokes. Uh, when was it made? Uh, I don't even remember, but okay. pre pre 1935, I guess. Okay. Um, probably I mean, it sounds, so it was probably a 29 or 30. I right. think. Okay. Uh, uh, the Sultan's Jester. The Sultan's Jester. I don't think it's a, available anywhere, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of some of the corny jokes that the Sultan or the Jester tells. I can't. Well, there's one of them. He talked about how sexy this woman is that he's going to bring out. And he's like, you'll be necking, but you won't be heading. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you would love that. <laughs> You're a real son of a bitch. Um, okay, so uh, next is another rewatch that I, that I actually just remembered. Uh, which is uh, Rodney Asher's The Nightmare, which I saw a few months ago, and then uh, rewatched with a friend of mine who enjoys uh, horror movies. And uh, boy, that movie's effective. Um, just you would never, th- you wouldn't think that a horror documentary would be so effective both as a horror movie and as a documentary, um, but it is. And I think it has to do with Rodney's command of tone, just perpetual, just dread but like a cure but curiosity as well you know like sort of that almost that idea of like poking your nose in where you know bad things are going to happen right um and uh it's just and the way he recreates some of these nightmares um and then you know the way he breaks the fourth wall uh did you ever see it the nightmare no i haven't seen it yet uh it is available on vod um i highly recommend if you're a horror person i highly recommend it um it does make me, it makes me slightly afraid to sleep. Um, partially because the film talks about, you know, some of the people in the film talk about like they had never had it until someone else who had it told them about it. And then they got it. And I thought like, Rodney, what are you doing? Yeah. You're spreading this horrible virus. Great. Um, oh, but great. it's, uh, but yeah, uh, it was a really, it, it's just a very, very effective film. Uh, listeners, if you enjoy horror movies or you enjoy a very specific type of documentary that involves like heavy reenactment and stuff, uh, seek it out. It's, it's extremely interesting. Okay. Um, the second night at the real thing, um, was uh, ended with a new 4k restoration of Otto Preminger's where the sidewalk ends. Oh and yeah. Oh I saw that. boy. You've seen that one. Yeah. Oh man. It is. A, is it a good movie? I love it. It is so good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, <laughs> it's like, David is speechless. yeah, you know, it, it reminds me in a way, and I know, I don't know how you'll like this comparison okay. because you are not as much a fan of this show as a lot of people are, okay. but it reminds me of breaking bad okay. in that. I feel like we talk about often movies being. Uh, it's some, sometimes it, 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 we, we talk about movies as if they're either character driven or plot driven. 
Sure. And I think some of the best stuff like breaking bad, you can't really separate the two. Right. The plot right. happens because of the character and the characters who they are because of the plot and, and so far and so yeah. on and so forth. And that's really what this movie is. It, you know, I mean, uh, it very brilliantly sets up in a way that is not heavy handed. There's a scene at the beginning where the, um, detective, um, played by Dan Andrews, uh, Dan Andrews, that's right. Yeah. Um, is told he's, you know, you're too rough with the hoods, with yeah. the, with, with the criminals. Uh, if we hear any more of this, you're out, you're getting busted down to, yeah. you know, walk on a beat again. And what I love about that is that it sets up why he went, uh, eventually when he does accidentally kill a man by mm-hmm. punching him too hard. Yeah. Um, that sets up why he reacts the way he does because mm-hmm. he's terrified of losing his job. But also as we learn about him, we also learn why he is that way with criminals. Yeah. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all tied together and it, and it moves. So, uh, it, there's not a second of wasted time or space in that movie. Yeah. It, it just, it, once it gets rolling, it, it has such surety and economy uh, to how it's told and how it looks and how it unfolds. It's, I mean, it's close to being, I mean, I've talked about movies being perfect mm-hmm. and that not necessarily meaning they're the great, greatest movies. Cause some right. of the greatest movies are a little messy. Yeah. So when I don't want to sound like I'm saying this is one of the greatest movies of all time, but it is close to perfect. I think. Yeah. It's, uh, it does have a, like a weirdly like, like a lot of more movies. It's like, Oh, I guess that's how it's ending. Yeah, yeah, but I but I like the ending. Did you not like it? I I can't say what I didn't like about it without it being a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know how many people have seen. I feel like Sidewalk Ends, so I don't know if I can spoil it. Okay, yes. Let's let's keep it. Okay, let's keep it that way. Um, okay, so uh, I watched at, at long last. Friend of the show, Jason Egan, got together and watched us, The Hobbit, the token cut. Okay, which was four and a half hours. A good portion of that is credits, by the way. Um, <laughs> the uh, so, so what somebody did is they took the three Hobbit movies, cut them together into one four-hour film. Um, and then I found out later that uh, somebody did it into a three-hour film, which actually intrigues me because uh, the four-hour film actually felt a little truncated to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is so... I won't say good... It is so much better. Like it, you come to realize what we all knew, which was this should have been one movie, maybe two, uh, yeah. but like this three and all the shit they add in. It's not me. Like I can understand what Peter Jackson was doing when it's like, okay, well let's incorporate all this other stuff from Tolkien, but is not the Hobbit. Let's incorporate that so that we can further explore this world. It's like, okay, that's fine. I can understand that. I can appreciate that. Here's the problem. The more time you spend with Gandalf off, uh, you know, uh, setting up the Lord of the Rings films, which we've already seen, so who cares? Um, the more time you spend with that, the less time you're spending with Bilbo, the less yeah. time you're spending with the dwarves, and thus there's a the it can be to me it can be summed up best this way. So you've seen all three films, right? Yep. Okay. So at the end of the third film, Bilbo is talking to the the dwarves, and he says. If ever you're in, you know, if ever you're walking through the Shire, stop on by and, you know, and you don't need to bother knocking. 
and it's a, it's a nice moment. Martin Freeman has always been the MVP of that of that series. He's uh-huh. amazing. Um, and in that when I when I saw the third film in the theater, I thought, yeah, all right. And I had a I had a distant memory of the dwarves coming into his house uninvited, um, and him being like oh, okay. not being happy with that. Well, you okay? So that's three years. Two years. Two years, pardon yeah. me. There's two years difference there, and they require you to remember that. You you take that down to one film where not only was that experience only a few hours ago, but in between, you've spent a lot of time with Bilbo and the dwarves. It feel, I, feel, I have a much stronger sense of who the dwarves are. I feel much more connected and more invested in the dwarves and in Bilbo's connection to them. So... In, so Peter Jackson, in, tr- in trying to explore the world of Middle Earth and The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which he did, but what he sacrificed was character relationships and arcs, and although there's plenty of orcs. <laughs> Actually, he cut out a lot of those, too. Um, and, and, and story, you know, and this is a journey. It's uh, an unexpected one. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a journey and the journey loses all momentum in those three films. But I will also say that the amount of time that he devotes to the battle of the five armies, uh, when it's three films, it's excessive. When it's one film, it's very excessive. <laughs> uh, and you just realize that like, it feels like something out of a completely different film. Like it, it seems like, and I know that's that it's in the book. So by all means incorporate it, but the natural climax of that story is smog. Like it's the, one of the most effective scenes in there. And that is left pretty much completely intact. Okay. Um, and so it's, it wound, it's a, from an experiment standpoint, cause it's not perfect. He cut out stuff that I think he probably shouldn't have that actually made some things less effective. But, um, but at the same time, so he didn't make any changes to the credits at the end, uh-huh. which would show like images of the, of the characters and then like the name of the actor. So, you know, up pops, uh, Radagast, that wizard, uh-huh. he's cut out completely. And I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot he was in this. And you realize he's gone and you don't notice it at all. The love triangle is gone completely. Kate Blanchett is gone completely. And you just, you don't notice any of it. And you, it's, and the, and the, and if, and there's still a lot, there's still like really good pacing to it. It's, no. it's a very interesting experiment. You uh, are a very big Tom Waits fan. Yes. And there are CDs that you never bought. That's correct. Because they were not approved by Tom Waits. Right. Do you, you don't have any of that with watching this? Well, I, it's not like I'm going to go out and like purchase it. It's not like I'm going to say this. I, the, the film student in me enjoys the experiment aspect of it. In the same way that, like, you know, in Room 237, where they talk about they're running The Shining backwards and forwards at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I wouldn't go to. I, I feel like, I guess I feel like there are things you can't unsee, and it's unfair. It's why I don't, I no longer watch deleted scenes when they're on a DVD. Yeah, I haven't in a while part of it like because i think about donnie darko like i think donnie darko is a good movie mm-hmm. if you watch it with the deleted scenes in it's not good at all like it really screws up the movie and you yeah. see and so it, and like 
I think it leads to this interpretation of like, oh, Richard Kelly was just like a couple decisions away from making a really shitty movie. Yeah, but and he it made those decisions. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but I feel like I'd rather just see the movie and like, sure, I don't have to think about that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think I would watch that thing that you watched. I mean, I'm glad that you, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about, Yeah, but I, I don't think I would watch it, um, for two reasons, which one, which is it would, um, <laughs> I mean, this sounds weird. It would tarnish my memory of the movies, even though I don't like the movies, yeah. I still want my memory of the movies to be of yeah. the movies and out of this hypothetical other thing. And also whether I like the movies or not, it feels disrespectful to Peter Jackson to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get that. And it's a thing that I've had to struggle with, uh, myself. Um, but from a, like, as somebody who who desires to have a deeper understanding of how story works and how characters work and why a movie won't uh, maybe doesn't work and the idea of like and especially the idea that a movie is made through editing um made or broken through editing um the experiment aspect of it like i had a hard time including it in this conversation because it's not a movie. Right. It's an experiment. Yeah, that's But I but yeah. because I talked about it elsewhere, I thought I would include it just cuz it's it wound up being interesting. Um and I was happy that I I was happy that I saw it that way. It's not like I'm going to, you know, um on that website somebody designed like a, a DVD cover so like you could burn it onto a disc, put it in a slip that into a DVD case and then put it up on your shelves. Like I would never do that. Right. For a number of reasons. But it's just like, because in my own mind, even I know this could have been the the most satisfying thing, but even I know it's like, yeah, but it's not real. Right. You know? Right. So. Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, the third and final film that I saw at the real thing was an awesome and beautiful new, again, 4K restoration of Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Okay. Have you ever seen Johnny Guitar? I've not. It is a delight. Okay. It's a blast. It got a lot of... I was somewhat... You know, these people who were at the thing are, in theory, film lovers, but it got a lot of responses that I didn't appreciate. Like, people laughing at it in a way... You know, our... um friend of the podcast friend of the show amy nicholson mm-hmm. um wrote a thing uh this was months ago at this point that was basically uh, something about like hipsters please stop laughing at old movies yes um and the response in the room had some of that as if it's and, tough and I, is, do you think it's but because it, it feels because they're laughing at it not in a way that it's funny but it feels like they're condescendingly assuming that Nicholas Ray didn't know he was making a movie that was a bit arch and a bit over the top. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, it's a, it's the laughter of hindsight. Yeah. But it's, but the thing is that it's, it makes assumptions that I don't think are there. I think the movie, uh, knows exactly what it's doing and knows exactly how, uh, how florid and, um, unrealistic its dialogue is uh which doesn't make it not good the unrealistic dialogue it's yeah. it's very artful and stylized um and in some time in, in some cases it's also it's very funny uh and also you've got mercedes mccambridge playing a character who is just a seething villain to the point where if this if the rest of the movie were pitched differently this would be scenery chewing 
Hmm. But the whole movie is at this is at yeah. this pitch. So it's okay for her to just be furious all the time. Um, and she's fantastic in it. Well, of course she is. I love Mer- I love Mercedes McCambridge. Um, but really the movie is, um, it's Joan Crawford and Sterling Hayden. By the way, second Sterling Hayden movie on this, uh, beefy movie journal. Cause mm-hmm. he's in nine to five. Um, he is. Yeah. A uh, very small role. Wow. Um, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Not uh, unlike, it's a, it's a, not unlike means, John Huston, I feel like he's yeah. very much. It's weird to see think of him in a modern context. Yeah. I say small role. I mean in terms of screen time, in terms of importance to the story, it's yeah. a hugely important role. He plays the. We, we talked about this uh, when we did the Lily, Lily Tomlin episode. We talked about flirting with disaster and the idea of like Lily Tomlin doesn't show up until the end of the movie, right. but uh, is she and Alan Alda don't show up until the end, but their presence hangs over everything that happens before them. We know that that we're waiting to meet them. So it's yeah. still a big role. That's what Sterling Hayden is in nine to five. He's the chairman of the board. Okay. And we know that he's, he exists, but he owns a bunch of other companies and he's not there very often. A lot of people speak about, about him in sort of mythical terms. Hmm. And then he shows up in like the penultimate scene. Okay. Uh, and he's Sterling Hayden. But anyway, that's nine to five. Uh, Johnny guitar is a movie where, uh, Joan Crawford plays a woman named Vienna who owns a bar slash gambling hall in, I don't think they ever, it's like the Colorado territory or the, I don't know, Nevada territory or something. Uh, they never say where exactly it is. I don't, unless I missed it. Um, it's out to outside of town or an unregulated p- place that she set up this, uh, this, this, this hall. And, um, she has, I guess, a relationship with some outlaws and not a good relationship with the town that thinks of itself mm. as more established, you know, trying to be civilized while she's out there running this, uh, gambling hall and, uh, associating with criminals. And then Sterling Hayden shows up as a guy that she has ostensibly a guy. She has hired to play the guitar. Yeah. He goes by Johnny guitar. That's not just the name of the movie. That's yeah. how he introduces himself. He goes by Johnny the guitar and he's a guy that she's hired, uh, to be entertainment at her bar slash gambling hall. And of course we find out there's more to him and that they have a past of their own. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about where it goes, but, um, it gets into, uh, you know, sort of like the, um, Douglas Sirk movies of the time, which were equally, uh, injected with uh outlandish color you know this is an incredibly colorful movie uh yeah. giant guitar and uh played uh at high melodrama uh also had but had a lot of social issues you know and so there's definitely with the idea of joan crawford being a um uh not, you know not a traditionally feminine character she yeah. she owns this bar she wears pants always um, and, uh, she's tough. She carries a gun and she, uh, you know, it's still, you know, 1953 or four, 1954. Cause it's the year before I will have a cause. Um, so there's still the code and everything, mm-hmm. but, um, there's some implication that, you know, she might have used her feminine wiles in a way to come by the money she got to buy uh-huh. th- this place. And she's kind of unapologetic about that. And it feels very forward in that way. And it also deals with, this is, a, this is something I knew going in because I had seen, um, Tom Anderson and Noel Birch's, uh, red Hollywood, uh, the documentary, oh, yeah, yeah. which includes clips from Johnny guitar because it was sort of, uh, covertly written by a blacklisted writer, Ben Maddow. Okay. Um, and it includes a scene where 
the mob, the authoritarian mob forces one of the criminals to implicate Vienna, Joan Crawford's character in a bank robbery in order to save his own skin, even though we know, and he knows, and she knows that she had nothing to do with it. Mm. Uh, it very much plays in, into that. Um, but with a lot of sympathy for this character, not, not demonizing him so much as demonizing the mob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I found very interesting. Um, Ernest Borgnine is also in it. And that's always uh, a good thing. Yeah. Anyway, it's a fascinating film. I don't know if there's a, a theatrical run or Blu-ray release. I can't remember. Uh, they might've said something about that. Um, but I imagine they're, you know, they wouldn't be doing a 4k restoration for nothing. So hopefully yeah. you will get a chance to see this new restoration, uh, soon. All right. Uh, so the last film that I saw is American ultra, which uh, did not do well at the box office, and so I wanted to uh, see it. I saw it last night. I wanted to see it before I uh, before it left theaters. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, for those that don't know, it's I mean, it's such an obvious uh, homage to the Bourne movies um, to the extent that it even takes place in a town called Lyman. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a character that's very similar to Clive Owen's character in the first film. Really, um, it's it's very interesting. And then the role that uh, Topher Grace plays is similar to like the David Strathairn or Chris Cooper or Joan Allen. Although actually, no, Joan Allen is sort of like the Connie Britton character. And so, okay. um, so yeah, if you if you like that series, I think you'll appreciate a lot about this movie. Um, I think. I think, uh, and, and there's, there's a lot of things I genuinely love about the film and I, and yet I'm about to speak uh, a little bit negatively about it is that, um, you know, I went in expecting uh, a comedy and it should be a comedy, which is to say it should be more comedic than it is. Okay. Um, that's the problem is it reminds me of, um, walk hard. Did you ever see walk hard? No. Okay. So it's supposed to be like a parody of the musical biopic, but after a while it's like, there's not a lot of laughs here. It's like, Oh, it got lulled into the format uh-huh. of the, of the musical biopic. And that's what it is now. And with this, like some of the action sequences are very well done. The stunts are very well done. It's very well choreographed. Like the action is real. Um, but it's so real. In fact, that after that, you're invested in a way that you ne- wouldn't necessarily be in a comic homage to something. Um, but, uh, but I will say that Jesse Eisenberg, if the film had taken its tone from his performance, I think it would have been more effective as a, as a comedic exploration of something. Um, because he really understands just in the way he carries himself physically. And I mean, he's, he's delivering lines in a sort of Jesse Eisenberg way, which is, you know, the fast talking nervous thing. But we tend not to think of Jesse Eisenberg as a stoner type character. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of him as a no, motor mouth, know-it-all motor mouth, know-it-all and smart mouth, smart mouth <laughs> inside Jeff. smart mouth. Um, so, uh, so he is able to modulate his performance accordingly so that him talking quickly is not an, uh, not a function of, of him being super smart. It's more about him being super paranoid and nervous and scared and all uh-huh. that. So it, his performance is really good. And there are sequences that are very effective and, and a lot of fun. Um, overall, it's a movie that I think I would, I would recommend, especially if you are a fan of the Bourne movies. 
Okay, uh, I saw... Uh, this is my last movie. I'm not sure that I have much TV to talk about. My last movie is uh, comes out this week. It's Craig Zobel's Z for Zachariah. Okay. Um, which I rather liked, and I really um, hope that you see it and maybe talk about it on more than one lesson. Oh, boy. Um, it's a post-apocalyptic movie. There's, okay. uh, uh, you know, plenty of those. Yeah. Um, and also have there been any, have there been any apocalyptic movies at this point? Like <laughs> I feel like there's way more movies about what happens afterwards and it seems like, right. well, cinematically, I feel like the apocalypse would be very interesting. Well, we got fear the walking dead, which, uh, did you watch that pilot? No, of course not. It's a snooze. That's what I've heard. Uh, I, I maybe like, I like, why did you watch it? Uh, for, Hey, watch this. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I like Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah. A lot. And one of the things I like about it is how the, just how quickly yeah. it goes from her, like Sarah Polly's character being in her normal life. Yeah. And then maybe there's one or two weird things when she's leaving her shift. And then yeah. she wakes up to a world that is completely gone haywire. Yes. I love how quickly that happens. And the, Fear the Walking Dead pilot is 90 minutes, minus commercials, obviously, but a 90-minute pilot that has that is just so boring. There's so, like, I was like, when are the zombies going to start showing up? Yeah. And there's barely zombies in it. See, and I kind of, I actually kind of like the idea oh, of establishing I, a, no. a world and all that. In theory. Okay. But what you need there are characters that are more than stock characters. And like, it's great. You've got Kim Dickens and Cliff Curtis I like, doing, yeah, I like you both know, of them. To, and that's, it's good that it's them. It would be even harder, but like, uh, I feel like, and that somehow we've talked like some of them talk about fear the, fear the walking dead after 90 minutes. I don't know those characters any better than I did 10 minutes in. Like, I feel like it sort of establishes the characters and then we're just waiting for the zombies to show up. That has always been my problem with, well, one of many problems with the walking dead is that either the characters are ridiculous archetypes or they're so bland that you just like, can, can the most interesting about the thing about this person is that they're going to get killed by a zombie <laughs> and I can't wait. Um, uh, well, so, yeah. there's, there's no zombies in Z for Zachariah. Um, Margot Robbie plays a woman who has lived. There's, it's not explained what happened to the world, but the world is covered in radiation, but mm-hmm. she lives in a Valley, um, somewhere in the American South. It's not said where, um, that is protected. Mm-hmm. So this Valley she lives in is lush, but she's the only human in the Valley. Uh, but then one day, uh, Chibatel four shows up. He's got this, uh, protective, uh, suit and he's been okay. looking for a place and he's very happy and they sort of make a life together. Um, and then after a little bit more time passes, uh, lo and behold, another person shows up. Chris Pine okay. shows up. Um, and, uh, it's about the three of them. And I guess it would be the trite way to describe it and the trite way to have executed it would be to call it a love triangle, but it's not that. Okay. Um, it is more about how different, how in a situation where people have to work together toward a seemingly common goal, Mm -hmm. how different philosophies of life brush up against one another and cause friction. Sure. Um, it, uh, it is almost, it's kind of, you can compare it to the, to lost in the sense that lost had its, um, man of faith, man of science thing. Right. Um, Margot Robbie's character is Christian. Okay. Um, she was, for character is not. Okay. 
and um, that Chris Pine is agnostic. Uh, well, Chris Pine, we Chris Pine, his character is Christian or claims to be. We don't really know. Mm. He's a wild card in a way because the relationship between Shibatoji Four and Margot Robbie is established by the time Chris Pine shows up. So we never really see Chris Pine. We never really see the world from Chris Pine's character's point of view. Yeah. We see him from their point of view. And okay, yeah, yeah. You know, with suspicion first, and then their the two, their two point of views on Chris Pine's character change over time, and so we there's a lot of tension that comes from that. Um, I don't know. I, I'm in the middle of writing a review about it. It will be up. It should be up by now. But works. Hmm. My day job has been crazy, so it'll be up tomorrow morning. Um, uh, I, I liked it quite a bit. It, okay. uh, it it really has some fantastic character work. Um, both on the page and in the, in the performances. All I'm right. a big Margot Robbie fan, uh, after, after Wolf of Wall Street and this, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. I saw focus. Oh, okay. And she's very good in that. That's the one where, um, William H. Macy gets glasses. That's the one. Um, all right. She plays meatloaf. <laughs> I forgot that he was in that. Yeah. Uh, let me real quick see. Do you have any television to talk? Yes, about? I do. Okay, go ahead. All right. So I watched a few episodes of, uh, of uh wet hot american summer okay which i thought was uh you know it's i'm enjoying it i don't like it as much as the movie maybe because everything is spread out but also you know it engages in a type of humor that i feel like i might be growing out of which is the intentionally bad or the intentionally uh, cheesy like trying to engage in in tropes of a specific genre which means okay we're gonna act like this and and you know, I it might be that in a in a ninety minute movie that's more acceptable, but in a series where you're seeing it every you know for a half hour, uh-huh. you know, f- which adds up to me, I don't know how like adds up to probably like five hours, five or six hours. That it runs a little bit. I don't know. It gets spread a little thin at that point, and. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still, it's still funny. Like it's still full of very funny people. But that joke after a while is just like, okay, yeah, I get it. The eighties movies are terrible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. Um, so yeah, I okay. think, uh, I think a little bit goes a long way there. Okay. Um, next, uh, let's see. Um, I don't want to talk about everything that, that I watched, but I do want to mention that project runway is back. Okay. Um, I'm enjoying it this season, even though it's not the best, group of designers, but I still think the show knows how to make, uh, good drama. Uh, they, I feel like they almost do it on autopilot, uh, okay. <laughs> at this point, but, um, yeah, that's probably runway. What else? I watched, uh, all of true detective, all of both seasons. Yep. You and made it through that second season. Huh? I started with the second season. Oh, okay. Because I thought it would be interesting given what people th- talk about, uh, how people talk about the second season. And I thought, I'm not necessarily required from a character and story standpoint to watch that first season. Thematically, I think I am. Um, and so I watched the second one and then I watched the first, uh, the first is obviously better. Um, but I do like that second one. And, um, well, I remember, um, God, this is the f- like 15th time that Paul Goebbels come up, but his wife, Brooke told me, because I gave up after three seasons, three episodes of the second yeah. season. But she was like, "Oh, you just got to watch the first five, then the show starts." <laughs> that's how she. That's how she described it. 
It's tough. It, you know, it, it almost feels like the first three episodes of the season of Hannibal, where it's very like much... Those. Well, yeah, but partially because we... That's the thing is, we had two seasons before that, you know, right. so that we were more invested in those. Um, and that's the thing. Like, it's all establishment of character and uh, general tone, which I'm okay with. Um, and I think this... So this is way too much of a shorthand, but this was helpful for me. Season one is Cormac McCarthy. Season two is James Elroy. Well, Um, that's perfect because I'm not a James Elroy fan. Yeah. And what I've read of his, like, I mean, to the point, like season two feels like the wire by way of LA confidential. Like it has a very, especially when it comes to like institutions, but also there are certain, you know, story beats that I'm like, Oh, I've seen LA confidential. I feel like that's, I know this person has, Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but no, I like some of the characters. I like some of the character choices. I like a lot of the acting. Uh, so I'm talking about season two right now. Right. Um, and it certainly ends in a, in a, uh, very satisfying way. Um, well, I mean, (laughs) a very frustrating way from a story standpoint, but thematically it's very satisfying. And so, and I agree with Brooke, uh, with, with Brooke, uh, like the first few episodes, it takes a while to get going. I think some of the issue is it takes a while to understand what the issue is, like what the mystery is. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, this guy's dead, and we seem to have an idea of what that means to the world, to the world, and to the community. So we we have an idea of that, but I feel like that that is where they where they drop the ball most is setting up what the stakes of this investigation are. But that, but as the seri- as as that season goes on, you understand that like, well, nobody really understands what the stakes are because the the what is going on is so uh, labyrinthine that uh, these characters, like, they basically emotionally give up in like episode eight. Not and which I know make may make it sound like it's boring, but it's more just like I thought there were only eight episodes. No, there's eight episodes in the first season. Uh, in the second one, I believe there are like maybe nine or 10. Wow. Um, I might be wrong about that. Um, glad I gave up when I did save myself a lot of time, but they kind of, yeah. So they, the characters, they get so deep into this plot that I think they start to realize like, okay, so there's no such thing as a happy ending here, but maybe we can kill some of the bad guys. And, uh, there's a, does it say how many episodes? I mean, to be says there's eight in each episode, each season. Maybe I'm wrong. I just, maybe some of the episodes are longer. I don't know. Like I kind of, I, I watched one right after another. And, uh, okay. for some reason I thought there was like nine or 10, but anyway, um, I do know that that last one is 90 minutes, but, um, but yeah. And so, uh, so I really like that. I'm a fan. It's it's noir-ish, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. But it has the cynicism of noir, and it has the tragic heroes. Um, so I liked that a, quite a bit. And then you watch the I watched the first season, and you know by having okay, it's it's these two guys. The case is clear. There's no, it's not much of an ensemble. Right. I think it's it's much more uh, pared down, and whatever ornamentation. Uh, is there is not necessarily plot oriented. It's world oriented Um, as they, you know, this, this very Southern fried Gothic type thing um, that I really enjoyed. And I really appreciate it. And I liked a lot of the philosophy of it. I'll probably be doing a more than one lesson episode about the first season of true detective. Um, Maybe the second one too, actually, because thematically what I love. So even though I watched the second one first, um, 
I was able to use my brain and imagine what it would be like to watch the first season first and then the second one. And thematically, I love it. I love how different they are because in the first one, you know, and I don't think I'm far off when I say it's like Cormac McCarthy because in the very last episode, you have a moment when when Matthew McConaughey is describing a dream and then says, and then I woke up mm-hmm. and it's one of the, la- it's in the last scene of the, of the show. Um, but, uh, but you have these characters wrestling with the idea of evil and what that looks like. And, you know, that's the last conversation of the, of the first season is light versus dark and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, I really like that thematically and what I like about season two, what that brings to it is what they're dealing with in season one is just like pure crazy evil, the kind of evil that cannot be negotiated with. Uh-huh. And the, it like, it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the kind of evil that I find particularly terrifying because there's no, you can't make an appeal to that person. Right. Season two, they're also dealing with evil, but they're dealing with clear eyed, logical calculating evil Mm -hmm. they're talking they're dealing with greed they're not you know when you see the eventual killer in season one it's just like it's like a demon from another world (laughs) uh played by a wonderful actor by the way who i've seen in boardwalk empire and is also in hannibal um what's his name i don't remember the name of the actor but do you remember who he plays in hannibal uh i do not okay he is uh, Mason Verger's uh, like assistant. Oh, that's him. Yeah, I don't think I even put two and two together. Yeah. yeah, it's I I know him first and foremost from Boardwalk Empire, where he plays this guy who's very proper and only ever refers to himself in the third person, which bothers everybody around him. And so, so that character is just like this complete monster that you can't make heads or tails of. But the characters in season two. They are businessmen and you can make an appeal to them and they might listen to you, but it is based 100% in their own self-interest. And that makes them a very different kind of monster, which, and one that is a lot less sensationalistic, but you're probably more likely to find. And it's just, so like, I'm eager to see what season, if there's going to be a season three, I'm eager to see what it is because it's just the, the 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 creator and the writer like just digging deeper and deeper into the into the different types of evil we're going to encounter and i think that's the issue is that certainly season two has its problems from a storytelling standpoint but but thematically i think people had a problem with it because season one is so strange and so Mm -hmm. outlandish and so inherently intriguing you see season two it's a lot more of what we've seen but it's like yes it is but it's also worth noting that there that season two ends on a much more hopeless note than season one. Um, so anyway, I was very happy I saw both, and I'm uh, I'm kind of happy that I saw them in the order that I did. Yeah, that's um, interesting because everyone I know that hates season two loved season one, yeah. and I feel like well, if I don't have to, now don't get me wrong, the creator of the show still intended for you to see it that way. But I feel like, uh, I don't think he did anything wrong. Okay. good. (laughs) Oh, and then I went in and recut, uh, the the second (laughs) season into, into uh, a two hour film. Is that a, is that an issue with you? Um, uh, yes. Um, um, uh, welcome to Sweden. NBC guy, NBC canceled it after four episodes of the second season, which is too bad because it was starting to get good. I haven't, 
I don't even know what it is. Oh, it's uh, Greg Poehler, who is Amy Poehler's brother. Okay. But it looks like he should be Greg Kinnear's brother because he looks exactly like Greg Kinnear. That's weird. Um, and his, uh, I guess, real life wife, um, who is Swedish, created a show together based on their actual experience of moving to Sweden together. Yeah. And it is a an, an NBC whatever Swedish company co-production that aired okay. both on NBC and in Sweden. Um, and, uh, the first season was a little like overly broad and I, um, would just watch it every week while I was on like the elliptical, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, last, last summer. And then this season I never delete, I never deleted the season recording thing for my DVR. So it just started recording them. And so I had four on there and then I found out they canceled it which is totally my fault, obviously, because okay. I didn't watch it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, well, now that this is gone, I guess I'll watch these. <laughs> and uh, now I'm bummed because it was starting to get good. Like, I think once it had settled into like, okay, Bruce, the character Greg Puller plays, he lives here now. This is no longer like, I mean, there'll still be some cultural clash things, but this isn't just a big dumb fish out of water comedy every mm-hmm. week. Like, this is about uh, a family and it's becoming more of an ensemble with like Emma being the Swedish character and her whole family, which it was in the first season too, but, uh, more about, uh, Bruce and Emma just being one of the two of the people in this, uh, in this, uh, in this family, in this ensemble. Hmm. But apparently the, uh, six episodes that, uh, never aired are all on Hulu. So oh, I'll, all right. I'll probably watch That's them fun. at some point. Any more TV for you? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I think well, I have, I'm done. I have one more thing, um, which is, uh, speaking of HBO, show me a hero. Oh, okay. On, yeah. Uh, HBO. I'm super into it okay. at this point. The, the first episode took a little bit to get its hooks in me because it, you know, I always, I always approach David Simon cautiously and sure. maybe at a sort of side angle. Like I don't want him to see me coming too close here. Uh, I don't want him to reach out and start uh, preaching at me. Okay. I see. Um, yeah. uh, as if to say like you there, it's like, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to like, as much as I, I like, I like to talk shit about David Simon, but I also like everything. Like I like the wire. I like Treme. Yeah. I like this. I like everything he does. This is a, you know, it's not separating the art from the artist in the same way that we have to do with like Mel Gibson or Woody Allen or sure. Roman Polanski or things like that. But it is like, okay, this guy's a douchebag in real life. Yeah. But he's heart, his heart's in the right place and he writes well. Okay. Um, but he, there's someone, when he gives an interview, I've hate read a couple of them and now it's just like, I'm done. I'm done with David. I'm with reading David Simon. I'll watch his stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to hear him talk about it. Yeah. I don't remember. I'd read one or two interviews and there was one that was like particularly like, sort of incendiary, like from a, a year or two ago. I don't remember okay. the, the specifics of See, it, but I don't even find him incendiary. I just find him so smug. And I hate, I hate that he makes great television and seems to have nothing but contempt for the medium of television. Yeah, that's he's, not great. He seems to feel like what he's making is somehow more than television. I mean, I guess it's HBO. So oh, it's that's TV. true. Yeah. But, uh, but, it does, but you know what? That, j- that merely says it's not TV. It's HBO. It doesn't say it's more than TV. Right. It's just, his own it's, thing. it runs parallel uh, to television, but no, he is making television and he's making good television. And I wish he would be okay with that and yeah. stop referring to the wire as a film, which is like, gets under my skin so much when he does that. It's anyway, 
Oh, that is frustrating. But uh, that's not. Show Me a Hero is really, really good um, and a fantastic ensemble, uh, but anchored by Oscar Isaac, who has yeah. yet to be anything but great in anything that I've seen him in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to what I think the they're doing two. It's six, six episodes, but they're doing two every Sunday. So I think it finishes out, finishes off this weekend. Oh, okay. So, uh, I look forward to that. That's it. Uh, we should wrap up. It's been two hours. Yep. All right. Bye.